I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentilli. I write for the New York Times and the New Yorker. And I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. This is the final episode of Three on the Isle. We've had a four-year run, which has been enormous fun, and we've decided to quit while we're still fresh. Yes, you, you, you're dropping the, the news so, uh, so casually, but, but, but somberly too. It's a good mix. It's a good mix. I, that was a really good line reading there. <laughs> yeah, um, it was very nice, Terry. Yes. Uh, well, we won't have notes on that line, but um, uh, yeah, I, yeah, we've just, um, we, you know, we've all come to a mutual decision that it's, uh, it's been a lovely run. Uh, unlike Wicked, we've decided there is a, a, a final time for, for a show like ours. And, uh, you know, who knows? After we cleaned up the blood from the fist fight, we thought, okay. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So, um, so it just feels, and an end of the year is always a, a good time, I think, to, to think about new beginnings for all of us. And, uh, and so it just felt like the right time. Mm-hmm. So we have two things planned for our finale. First, Erica Wong, our glorious producer, who we are really sad to say goodbye to. She has been exceptional in terms of her patience with uh, some very uh, 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 particular personalities that she's had to deal with over this time. And we love her. Yes. Uh, we'll be, she'll be putting together uh, a bit of a, a reel of uh, an interview that we did with uh, James Lapine, one of the great interviews we did over the course of this uh, of this run. And uh, Elizabeth, you want to talk about what else we'll talk about in this episode? Yeah, I think we're just, uh, I mean, I think if you're listening to this podcast, there's like a 99.99999% chance that you know what recently <laughs> the... Uh, yeah. The, the theater world had, you know, suffered a great loss. Uh, as, as Stephen Sondheim uh, died, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about a, a bit about that. What what is meant for for theater, but I think also maybe for us personally. Um, and you know, so that that'll be a nice conjunction with a, is that a word even <laughs> nice link with a conjunction. Uh, with what James Lapine had talked about, obviously. And, and Lapine was one of our most recent interviews, too. Like, I think there's something really uh, serendipitous about this, um, that his book came out pretty recently. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's very bittersweet. There's really a sense of things wrapping up um, in, in many ways. And then we're going to uh, wrap up by talking about what we think have been some of the key moments, each of us, of theater in the four years that we've been doing this show. To begin with, though, allow me to introduce Erica Wong, uh, who makes the trains run on time. I think the many guests who appeared on Three on the Isle might have been the heart of the show, but one of them, Mr. Lapine, obviously has special meaning for us today. Uh, Erica, what do you have for us from that interview? So when we had James on the show, he talked with us about the process of working on the show Sunday in the Park with George, um, how he and Stephen Sondheim sort of got started on it, what their partnership was like, some of their creative 
processes and creative differences um and ultimately just what it was like collaborating with him on a show i think it was a flight of fancy and and um i just i just wrote the first five pages and and he read them and you know this was pre internet pre fax machine i mean it was so weird to go and like hand somebody five pages and sit there and watch them while they read it. And then he goes, I think I better read this again. <laughs> he wow. reads it again. And I'm waiting like, well, you know, what is this, you know, Broadway guy going to say about this? And then he, uh, you know, he goes and he points on the second page to some inane little line. And he goes, I think there should be a song here. And I said to him, when we started, the only thing I know about is this is how it's going to end. And that's the recreation of the painting. Uh, I didn't mm-hmm. put the wow in there like you just did, but um, I didn't know mm. it was going to be a wow moment. <laughs> I just knew that's what we were heading towards. So um, no, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not very driven by audience as he was in a way, because that's mm. the world that he had unfortunately had to live through uh, at that point in his life as a writer. Um, and the high stakes of the economics of it all, you know, I was a picture maker. That's what I, I did, you Mm. know, I, with photography and graphic design, it was making pictures and that's how my mind worked. Who must have found it liberating to work with you? Well, I think he did. I think it was so different than anybody he had been encountered with in the theater that I think that interested him a lot. Steve had one foot out the door though, of course, the entire good stretch and um it's funny because i was always the one foot out the door guy but suddenly his foot was further out the door than mine and i kept thinking well this guy's never going to write a song so i had a commission and this i was using this piece as the commission that i got at playwrights horizons and so i thought it'll be a play you know but he ended up writing a song so i think i think he was certainly at um in a funk when I met him. Um, I don't think he knew where he was headed or what he was going to do, but I think it was obviously my good luck to meet him at that moment in time, because I think, yes, I think he needed a change. And I think the way I knew Steve then, he was very, I won't say he was very dependent on Hal. Hal was the engine in a way, you know, Mm. uh, of their projects. And I think Steve, that was all Steve knew, you know, in a way of having a strong director uh, pushing a show forward, not the writers pushing, pushing the show forward. I think I was so entranced by act one that I had a hard time processing act two. And that was a big issue at the time. As I recall, there were a lot of writing about, you know, there was a lot of controversy about the second act. No. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, Like people hated it, you know. And um, (laughs) well, um, first of all, not everyone liked the first act, but uh, the people who liked the first act, you know, didn't like the second act. But Mm -hmm. in fairness, um, I I think um, it wasn't finished. I think the majority of the preview audience never saw a finished show. Uh, Mm. I think when the critics came in was just about literally you know, the last paintbrush dot on the canvas. And um, so I, th- I, f- I felt there was already such bad word of mouth on the second act that, you know, people were coming in almost expecting it not to work. Um, 
But I don't know, you know, I just think Steve and I, it was unfinished. And he had those two songs that were missing, which I think pulled the whole act together. And mm. um, Oh, yeah. Obviously. It's great, how, it's great how you write about that in the book. Mm. Yeah, well, that's the drama of the book, frankly, you know. It was really like, uh, it, it, to this day, it's very hard for me to understand because Steve wrote a lot of the songs rather quickly. And I could never understand why these last two songs um, just weren't coming along. I mean, we were in the entire preview period and they were the last two. They were never there. So um, but as I also say in the book, you know, it wasn't like he was twiddling his thumbs. He was just writing them and writing them and writing them over and cutting them and trimming them and refining them. I think there was something that was hard for him to let go of them. Did he reassure you that, that this had happened before, that he'd written songs at the very last minute? No, but, you know, if it were Hal Prince, Hal Prince would have probably been screaming at him, you know, where are the fucking songs and whatever. And I'm maybe just our relationship was so different. I just not my in my style to do that. I just trusted him and uh, uh, he knew we needed them. And, you know, it wasn't going to help the situation by trying to beat it out of him. He used to say to me when we, I don't remember if it was when we did Sunday or as we were working on other shows, but he'd go, James, do you want it Tuesday or do you want it good? You know, and, <laughs> and of course the natural response is I want it Tuesday and I want it good. But, you know, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, he, he is who he is because of the way he works. And, and that's, you know, what you buy into when you work with him, which is fine by me. I suppose the one person we would most like to have had on Three on the Isle was Lapine's longtime creative partner, Stephen Sondheim, who was one of the great collaborators, somebody who worked with Sondheim, with numerous other people, uh, whose whole theatrical life was energized by collaboration, and who, by all accounts, was the perfect collaborator. Uh, Mr. Lapine talked a bit about that in the interview. Um, I never met him, and I confess that we never had the nerve to ask him to do this show. <laughs> Though reading the countless tributes to Sondheim's kindness and consideration, I wonder whether he might not possibly have said yes to us. Mm. Yeah, we didn't try. You know, I think he might have said yes. He was he loved to talk about. Uh, what he did and how he did it. And he had a very complicated relationship with critics, too. Uh, mm. That was uh, something he he said to me once that the only critics he read were the ones who could sell tickets for him, uh, which I think he came to late in his career. I'm not sure he always felt mm -hmm. that way, mm -hmm. but I actually did uh, interview him. I spoke to him on several occasions in the course of reporting stories and on one terrifying day, about 10 years ago, I was asked to interview him for 90 minutes on a stage in front of a thousand people. Oh my God. Oh my God. In North Bethesda, Maryland at the, at the Music Center at Stratmore. Uh, it was on the occasion of the publication of, his, of one of his memoirs about songwriting. I think it was Finishing the Hat at the time, the first volume. And it was the scariest day I've ever spent uh, in terms of interviewing, because first of all, it was 90 minutes. 
And second of all, it was Sondheim, who I have uh, worshipped since I was uh, 13 years old and saw... You wrote beautifully about that in your Washington Post tribute to Sondheim, which ran the... Uh, I guess it went online the night of his death. Yeah, well, I wrote it right in the hours after I heard, like you did, Terry, uh, about uh, about his death. And I have to say that he's the most important theater person I have ever known. Uh, and, and I don't mean personally, I mean in terms of my theater education and my theater love. He just transformed what I thought musical theater could be. And from the very beginning, I was mesmerized by his, the magic in his intellectual and uh, artistic and emotional embrace of musical theater. It just meant that much to me. I first heard and saw a Sondheim show when I was in college. It must have been the Roadshow of a Little Night Music. I know, I know I saw and heard that show back then. And I thought it was wonderful, but I had no context for it. It was just this marvelous thing. And then when I moved to New York at the age of 29, the first you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to see a lot of shows on Broadway. And the first thing that I saw was, as it happened, the very first preview of Into the Woods. Um, and that was when he, I started to get the point and realized that he wasn't like other writers of show music, wasn't like other uh, musical creators. He had, in a way, more in common with my own background in classical music. You could see that, I mean, he, he, he wasn't obvious about his training, but he had high-level classical training. He actually studied with Milton Babbitt, an avant-garde classical composer, who also loved show music and never could get any of his own shows done. Um, and that was it. After I saw that, I thought, okay, this man is going to become important to me. What I did not anticipate was that he would become, for me, I think maybe the most important theatrical artist to be active in my lifetime. I would actually rank him alongside people like Tom Stoppard in terms of the connection that he made with me. Uh, I thought, this guy and his attitudes speak to my own sense of the world. You remember he, he said once that uh, um, he liked to write about ambivalence because he, he felt it. And he thought that that was what most people felt. Mm. And when I read that quote, I thought, yes, now I, now I get these songs, uh, uh, those personal songs. Uh, well, I, just, I wrote, I, just, I yeah. am... I found, you know, I, the first show I saw was uh, I stood in the back of the Alvin Theater. I had standing room tickets for like, I think, $3 at Company, which I knew very little about when I walked in. And um, What, the original production? The original production of Company. Oh, man. I saw it in 1968, I think, or 69. And uh, I became so obsessed with that album. I can, I do not have the lyrics in front of me, but I will just recite for you in tribute to Sondheim. Pardon me, is everybody here? Because if everybody's here, I want to thank you all for coming to the wedding. I'd appreciate you going and marrying me. You must have lots of better things to do and not a word of it to Paul. Remember, Paul, you know that I'm married, I'm married when I'm not, but I wouldn't, because I wouldn't ruin anyone as wonderful as he is. Thank you all for the gifts. I, I can go on. And that's a wrap. The podcast is done. Yeah. <laughs>
I'm just that's telling it. you how obsessed. I, I, that's that's it. the way of telling you. We're done. Obsessed. The great patter song of American <laughs> musical theater, worthy of Gilbert and Sullivan. There was such a advanced facility with language. And let's, you know, I, I couldn't absorb it more. I couldn't feel more in sync with the level of cerebration, with the smartness of this man and the way he understood language and, and used it with music in the most compatible way. Found these- That's so interesting, Peter. For me, it was the feeling. For you, it was the use of language. Yes, Everybody comes in totally. for a different way. Yeah. What about you, Elizabeth? What is what is your early experience with something? Um, I the first one I saw live was Into the Woods as well on Broadway, which was one of the very very early shows I saw on Broadway when I moved to the U.S. But unlike you, I admire him and I fully understand his role in musical theater more than I love him emotionally. It is, not, it is not someone that I have an emotional relationship with, which does not prevent me from grasping his importance. And I think that's something people tend to lose sight of now in the critical discourse. Like if you're not emotionally involved in something, you cannot tell that it's important. You, you know what I mean? I think a lot of people now are losing sight of that. I, uh, I think I, I am really able to separate the two here. It's very obvious from a very just like, it's obvious that if you have any interest in in music and theater and musical theater, his position of prominence in the field is undisputable. He, do I listen to the cast albums voluntarily on my own? Do they pop up in my Spotify? No, they do not. Mm. Do I enjoy them when I go see them? Yes, but do they make me cry? Do they? No. They don't. Boy, it's an I've interesting thing. I've a lot of tears over oh sometimes. Oh, my God. I, uh, it's hard for me to process. Whereas I will take a Covenant and Green show over a Sondheim show any day. Like, that's really, for me, what I prefer. Uh, I wonder, I wonder, Elizabeth, if the fact that culturally you started from a very different place, um, mm-hmm. growing up yes. in Africa, uh, educated in France, if it, I wonder if, because for me, Sondheim entered my lexicon after falling in love with musical theater and particularly Lerner and Lowe and Harnick and Bach, who had a different, who were intelligent writers who could create a character through song. But there was a whole other level for me of the way in which Sondheim invested those qualities in his work. So it was an, a natural evolution that I fe- in which to which I found Sondheim. See, see, for me, I fell in love with musicals, as in movie musicals, because that's all we had where I was growing up. So I was like obsessed with like Golden Age MGM musicals. And it was much later that I, real- that I realized that some of them... <laughs> We're based on Broadway musicals. I had no idea. So I really got into it from that perspective. And so when I first uh, came to New York and I started going to Broadway, so then I caught up, you know, and educated myself. I was uh, the reverse almost. I, Sondheim and A Chorus Line were the first musicals I ever got to know well. 
And I hadn't been interested in musicals before that. But I didn't grow up to be a Sondheim snob. You know, the people, there's really nothing else but Stephen Sondheim. Because once I got to New York and, and began seeing musicals, revivals, I realized what an amazing form. This is great. I just love this. Uh, and that was when my own taste fanned out. But Sondheim, for me, was always the, he was a special case. He, he, it's funny because he used the techniques of, of an older Broadway. Uh, he collaborated with people. He, he, his great teacher, Oscar Hammerstein, invented those techniques. Um, and he was the one who brought me in. Um, and that was, that's part of the debt I owe him, but well, most, mostly just because he speaks to me on a personal level. But he, um, you know, what he did was, uh, you know, his innovations were endless. His inventions and reinventions happened over and over and over. If you think about, you know, Ben's breakdown in Follies, if you think about someone in a tree, the story of history told by three um, bystanders in Pacific Overtures, if you think about, um, you know, Desiree singing this plaintive ballad about, you know, and, and not head on the way most uh, writers would approach it, but but using this image of, of clowns. Um, if you think about, uh, you know, going forward, if you think about uh, Sweeney dancing Mrs. Lovett into an oven and making that the climax of a musical, if you think about Fosca, uh, an obsessive, unpleasant... Oh God, woman, I'd I'd rather not think about Fosco. Oh, it's a <laughs> musical. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not going to hear a bad word about passion. But anyway. I saw that's one of the two of which I saw the original production, that and, and Into the Woods. And you remember how frightful the, the both the reviews and the buzz were on this show. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a noise of, oh, he's lost it. This is terrible. Right. I thought it was terrific but who was i to say at that point i wasn't a drama critic Mm. it was one of many sondheim shows that found their footing through revivals um and as i said in my tribute to sondheim the key figure is john doyle because john doyle's production of sweeney todd the one that made it to broadway it originated in cincinnati it, it was the beginning of our understanding that Sondheim shows can be done on a small scale by theater companies that don't normally produce musicals. And suddenly uh, you were seeing revivals all over the country by companies like Chicago Shakespeare, by companies like Writers Theater, uh, who they didn't do musicals, but they knew that Sondheim was something unique and special as a dramatist, the great dramatist of American songwriting. And um, uh, Doyle turned the key in the lock and made Sondheim available. I had feared before that that Sondheim's revival life would have to come from opera houses. Uh, but no. then, you know, huh. Doyle, that's, Sweeney, Todd. Nope. That's, a, that's a really interesting theory because I think, apart from that Sweeney Todd, the Doyle one, which I really liked, I think what you described to me as not being a good development I mostly do not like those productions. I think they're musically really poor. Uh, I I am not sure that's something that should be praised, actually. 
They don't have uh, to be. They don't have to be. A classic stage is revival of passion. They they got Jonathan Tunick to do a rescoring for I forget five or six instruments, and they were well played. I mean, those scores need to be extremely well played. Yes, and they don't always get that kind of good playing. Um, you know, I they was- don't regionals. Yeah, I will say that that Sondheim is the one composer lyricist uh, about whom I don't care what anybody else thinks of the, of him. He is so personal to me. I know it's sort of you know extreme, but I I associate uh, communing with Sondheim shows with being in a cave, my bedroom, or somewhere else, and it's just me and the music. You know, it doesn't even have to be the 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 uh, staged version of a show. That's how I have metabolized Sondheim. So, you know, any intellectual uh, sort of um, uh, 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 appraisal of him is secondary to that, the level at which he is meaningful to me. That was you know, the beauty of your tribute to him. Well, thank you. But I do think that, you know, I have to say that I had been dreading his death for years because I thought I was losing my lodestar. I mean, it's the sure. one person in, in, in theater who above all, you know, Shakespeare was certainly important. There were many uh, playwrights that I love, but Sondheim was, was the pinnacle. He was the most important influence on me and my theater education. And it's devastating to me on some level. I have not been able to yet process um, the idea that he was mortal. Um, yeah. It's just not, it's just not coming through yet. Where do you place Sweeney Todd in the total output? Um, well, uh, where do you think, uh, uh, I would think, Elizabeth, how did you feel about Sweeney Todd? Did you like Sweeney Todd? Sweeney Todd, I, I do love Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Uh, and that's one actually, do you remember that uh, production? Where was it? At, at Barrow Street, I think. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. I, I, that was one of the few smaller scale one that I love. Um, but in, that was set in, general, in the pie shop, that was set right, in yeah, the, pie the, shop. the kind of immersive pie shop with like four people, five. I mean, it was really small. Uh, and I love it because that is one also where I love all the references that I worked in, you know, that I worked in. And one of the things actually that I really, uh, admire with them is that is, unbelievable erudition like the breadth of stuff the guy saw he knew movies he knew music he knew like shortly before the last show he saw what i think was dana h which is a really yes. like like <laughs> it's a difficult show it's a really like almost bordering on the experimental show. And he saw it like very, very shortly before his death. Like blows me away. One, that he was out. And two, that's the show you went to see. That, that just like... But he was an interesting character because, you know, he didn't, he was surprising in what he thought and what he valued. Uh, I talked to a guy named Mark Eden Horowitz for one of my stories, who is the Librarian of Congre- Library of Congress's guy for musical theater. And he has interviewed Sondheim over the years uh, you know, many times. And he told me that in one of his original first visits to Sondheim, he asked Sondheim what beside his own work he really loved. And when he said that to me, he said, what do you, what can you imagine he would say? And I was completely <laughs> unclear. And he said, the whiz. And I said, what? really? I said, wow. What? And he said that in the whiz, 
Sondheim said that Ease On Down the Road was a perfect example of prosody. That it was the perfect, it was, you couldn't imagine those lyrics with any other music ever. This is what, this is what he wow. said. Wow, okay. No, but that, that possibility is so rare in musical theater that he couldn't imagine anything more, you know, per- perfect. I mean, it's not, you know. That's great, wow. In mind that didn't go to the places you would think it would. And it was almost like, What? I don't I, get it. You know, I, I mean, that's, you know, but, you know, I mean, that's where his interesting, rarefied intelligence took him. And then I, I remember one night, it was a horrible winter night. It was snowy. It was just like a horrible, disgusting night, like New York winter night. And I went to the kitchen and for listeners, we're not in New York. The kitchen is a performance space on a really forlorn block. That is really a hard, it's far from, anyway, he probably took a car, but still, uh, it's really not a good fun place to go to. And I saw him waiting with everybody else in the lobby to go, go see a young Jean Lee show, <laughs> um, like way before she was on Broadway. And I was thinking, what is Stephen Sondheim doing? I mean, this is so awesome. And then, you know, the whiz. Yes. And I feel that actually, you know, I realize I don't see people going to theater, going to shows at the theater that often and or of that level. Uh, I, I, this makes me laugh actually because I, um, I, I, I run into a couple of actors twice who were in the audience in the pa- just in the past week, and uh, there there are a couple of actors that I've seen at the theater in the audience a lot. Like they're just fans. Mm-hmm. fans, um, J.O. Sanders and Marion Plunkett. I want to give them, <laughs> but I've seen them so many times in the audience at the theater and there they were again at the Lehman Trilogy. And I feel like it makes everybody's work so much richer. And and I, you know, I, I, I'm not what sure what I- What saying? That, that Sondheim had that, ability. I'm trying to understand what you're, you're, you're saying. Well, my point, is that like he has this energy of looking and seeing what's happening that he's I not see. disconnected I, he's yeah, not right. disconnected from from, from, from life if, at the theater he's not just re-watching 1940s movies on dvd at home you know he affected you know? he affected not to like opera and he had good reasons for it i mean essentially you know he thought that opera singers generally weren't very good actors which when he was growing up was true it's not true now Mm. Um, but um, but he foamed over with exceptions. He loved Benjamin Britten's uh, operas, uh, just like he loved the music of Ravel. I think Sweeney Todd is as close to being an opera as doesn't matter. Mm. Uh, he called it a, a, what, a dark operetta, something like that. that I, he was mincing words. Skylar Chapin, who used to run the Metropolitan Opera House, said that if he had been offered Sweeney Todd for the Met, he would have produced it there immediately. And Chapin was right. And we, we of course, have learned that from the Opera House productions that have been done in, in, by several theaters. Um, it, it's wonderful that it can be done on a small scale because we get to see it more because of that. Mm-hmm. But it's a big show. And on the, on the day of Sondheim's death that night, I watched the film of the roadshow of the original production with George Hearn replacing Lynn Carrier. 
and uh, Angela Lansbury. It's a very clear document of what the show was like on Broadway and in Hal Prince's production. And I thought, my God, you know, in some ways it is a chamber opera. It doesn't have many people in it. It, it takes place in a compact space, mm. but it's an opera. It's an opera. Uh, my, my operatic collaborator, Paul Moravec, very distinguished classical composer, he says Sweeney Todd is the greatest of all American operas, including Corgi and Bess. Mm. And I, I think I'd stand on that. Uh, I'm glad to see it done any way anybody wants to do it. But to me, it is at heart the great American opera. And uh, I think, I mean, it's, it's a fool's game to say, well, it was sometimes greatest show. Right. But if I were put against, you know, the firing squad wall, uh, I would take the deepest of breaths and say Sweeney Todd. And it was, it was good to commune with it on the night he died. Very good. Yeah. I, no one's going to argue with you with choosing Sweeney Todd. For me, I was thinking about your question, Terry, and it's, you know, it's the one I, it probably changes every six months because I think that's how um, um, deep and, and profound is the last one you saw. Well, I would say, though, that I think the one that is maybe the greatest achievement is one that's kind of flawed, and I think it's Follies. And the reason I say that is because the score so outpaces the book that James Goldman wrote. It's so visionary and so deeply affecting and so brilliantly, uh, uh, such a brilliant survey of, of, you know, American music uh, through that Mid that early century, mid century kind of period, yeah. and it has so much depth of character in each of those songs. Um, I never get tired of that score. It's it. It's hard to preclude and to start going through this because everyone's going to have a different opinion. Right sure. now, for me, that's the one that stands as this emblem of everything he could pour into a show. The pastiche. The um, the dramatic possibility, the 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 scale of Loveland, the and the final. human feeling of losing my mind. Oh, exactly. It doesn't have maybe doesn't have the kind of standout song that people remember, like something from like no, you know, not while I'm around, or send in the clowns, <laughs> or comedy tonight. Uh, but it does though. It has like some like songs like Broadway Baby. I mean, everybody. You know, it does have, and Losing My Mind is also very, not that far behind. Uh, I hope so. Sending the clown. I, you know, it's funny because I'm going to contradict myself because I, did you see that uh, production of Follies that they did at Encores? Like a few, maybe like no, 10 I didn't. years, Alas. something like that. And I, I, I did, I did cry. <laughs> really? I did cry. You're supposed to cry at Follies. It is now, it is now time to... <laughs> I know. So, but just to contradict what I was saying earlier, that it doesn't touch me emotionally. Like there was a moment in there, you know, when you have that moment where everything falls into place and you're just like, okay, this is, yeah. His song I love and follows is the road you didn't take. Mm. Elizabeth Vincentelli cries. I, you know, that's, I'm a crier actually. I, I, I am a big crier at shows. I cry Um, at commercials. I'm an easy weeper. I will also say that the hardest night of theater I ever had to review was the night I had to pan Sondheim. And that was at the um, the unveiling of 
the third iteration of oh, yeah. uh, Bounce. It was first called Gold, I think, and then called Wise Guys, and then it became Bounce, ultimately Roadshow. Um, and the, it, it, un, was, it was done in Chicago, I think, and then at the Kennedy Center where I had to review it. And, you know, uh, you know, critics are human beings, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, <laughs> and we, you know, we feel. And uh, the idea of somehow writing about him uh, and saying no was deeply distressing to me. Ah, oh, poor me, right? But I felt guilty. But, you know, it's, you don't want to be a obstacle to a great career. Um, but of course you also want to be honest. And I think that he strove, you know, he, as much as he sort of like groused about critics, it obviously affected him enough that he kept rewriting the show to the point yeah. where he, he finally, you know, he finally created this thing called Roadshow that did have a New York run. I don't think it ever really achieved uh, a satisfactory, uh, nobody, nobody revives it. That was another one that I think Encores uh, did, and uh, I quite, I really liked it actually, or at least that version. I that was the only time I saw it, so I have nothing else to compare it with. But I remember thinking, "Wow, this is actually really good." That's your Gallic perversity. <laughs> That's got to be it. Yeah, and and I like anyone can whistle. Oh yeah. Any final thoughts about uh, about Sondheim and where we go from from here with a theater without Sondheim? I don't know. There's no air. I, I hoped that uh, the light in the piazza was going to be a, a forward point, but, you know, he, he dried up too. So You know, at this point, I've got to wonder, honestly, where theater is going to go, period, considering what's happening. So it is such a... Which I guess is going to take us to our next segment, because... If the question is what is going to happen to theater with that sometime, it's like my question is like what's going to happen to theater overall? Right. What? Yeah, you guys. Well, I mean, seen, we've seen enormous in the time the four years. This is almost exactly our fourth anniversary that we have been doing this podcast. We have seen enormous changes in the world of American theater, um, and we couldn't begin to sum them up. Although for me, the the one that has struck me most and that I've been most deeply involved with. After the lockdown, I spent basically a year covering streaming productions and what we now call hybrid theater productions. And um, I think that whatever the future of theater is, that streaming and hybrid are going to be part of it. Uh, they reach a wider audience. They are independent art objects in their own right. They expand, they expand the reach of every theater company. They make it possible for regional companies to have a non-provincial reputation. And, um, uh, and they were my lifeline during those, those months and months of lockdown. Uh, believe me, I was most happy to get back into the theater with these awful masks on and be surrounded by human beings who were laughing and cheering and crying. But um, streaming theater, I think, is here to stay. That's my well, that's my I, uh, take, that's my takeaway from the last four. Well, years. T t Terry, I'm sure you've read them all, but I did about thirty columns, thirty columns about streaming theater. Yeah, uh, and I, what's been interesting to me is the coming of age of people who are working strictly within streaming theater, 
who are not people who are not like shooting, like capturing a show, but they are working within the constraints of streaming theater and trying to figure out like, okay, what is, what is that thing? And I, I hope they continue. Um, and I think there are signs also that we are really heading towards a, a hybrid model. Clyde's, which is a, the new Lynn Noted show on Broadway, he's going to stream the last two weeks of its performance on Broadway. And I think... Very important, that decision. I think that's the first time that's happened with a Broadway show. And I am going to wager that's not going to be the last. Uh, the, the Burton uh, Hamlet is, is the only Broadway show I can think of that was simulcast, and that was into movie theaters, not into the home. Right, yeah. Again, the National Theater has been doing that, but doing that to ticket holders that they can watch at home, that is going to be a game changer, I think. And, and it, I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda like, gave an interview recently where he was talking about how he felt that uh, having uh, Hamilton on the Disney Channel has not heard one bit the commercial prospect of his show. I mean, Hamilton immediately is like a class of its own. You know, we can't, like, I'm not sure we can apply all the lessons from Hamilton to everybody else, but I think it's very telling. And I think more of that is going to happen. For It works for some people, not for others, you know, but at least people may have the option. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to say, speaking of like commercial options, I think, you know, what's interesting is that I feel like when, when COVID struck uh, and theaters closed in March of last year, like, up until that time, Broadway was riding so high. Broadway was giddy on profits. A lot of shows were making a lot of money. Actually, a few shows were making a lot of money and a lot of shows were trying to scratch, you know, a living. But people were kind of living high. And I think, uh, you know, there was this kind of like needle screech of stopping and suddenly everything had to be reevaluated. Like the landscape has so changed. And then on top of that, you had, of course, the BLM movement, the Me Too, completely upending practices, uh, the way things are run, who gets to write what, who gets to present what, who gets to be on stage, who gets to be behind the scene. I mean, it's been incredible to witness that. I mean, I think it's been, I, I, who knows what's going to happen, but it's been incredible to live through that. Just wild, wild. Yeah, one unintended consequence of Me Too was that it caused a faster generational rollover of artistic mm-hmm. directors. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, long-standing figures uh, they they hung it up for various reasons, and in one prominent case, Gordon Edelstein, because they got caught up in a, a Me Too scandal. Um, but um, I think that's that healthy. deck is cleared. That table is cleared, and. Um, it's time to see what all these new faces are going to do. I, Peter, what is what stands out for you as you look well, back over this I was last gonna say, I was going to say that it is a completely redrawn map uh, today. That was my feeling of what of what and who uh, 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 owns the theater, and I don't mean it owns you know with contracts. I yeah. mean who claims the space. That has radically changed in the mm-hmm. minds of a whole generation of up-and-coming actors, playwrights, directors, I dare say artistic directors, of all colors, of all stripes, of all levels of, of, of aspiration. And that's going to be the ongoing story, the most interesting story to cover mm-hmm. 
over the next two years. Not so much, even though we've devoted so much energy and time to talking about COVID. And and I think that was the mm-hmm. sort of reset mechanism. It really yeah. didn't allow mm-hmm. us to rethink. You're totally right. But I think that we're going to think of things as 2019 and things as 2022. And there's going to be a huge uh, ground, uh, continuing groundswell within the field to change the, the narrative and the way in which decisions are made and what gets made. And that's a good thing because it's exciting to have even things that don't do well, but are from 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 aspects of the business, from people in the business who have felt marginalized, who are going to move to the center over the next few years. And we'll see what happens. You know, we'll see how this all plays out. But it's a very progressive field and it's a very um, dynamic field. And for this to stay alive, it's got to embrace all these new voices, and then eventually understand where the traditions come back in, mm-hmm. where the people who have traditionally guided um, mm-hmm. also have a, a place at the table. But I think this table now is large and grow and expanding, and we don't even know at this point what it's going to look like in six to 12 months. Such an interesting moment for Stephen Sondheim, the, the greatest American theater figure of my lifetime, to have quit the scene after mm-hmm. his great, great career. Um, it I, is. It's a I'll really share good. something about Sondheim that touched me deeply. Was um, a lot of people who really don't know who Stephen Sondheim is heard Adam Driver sing Being Alive, my, I guess, my favorite Sondheim song in marriage. That's right. And... And nothing happened. He just sang the song in a piano bar. And suddenly the, the action film stops and they're being exposed to a serious, reflect, re- respectful performance of this great, great song. And it reminds me that Sondheim's work will find different ways to be with us. It will move in, in, in with his death. Things will happen to it we did not anticipate but it will always be there. He is, he is our classic. And um, um, to lose him right at this key moment in the transformation of theater. Well, he mm. was always good on timing, wasn't he? Mm. Ever and always. Well, I don't know. Would you say that? Because sometimes you felt like actually something was off. He was a, a little ahead of time many times. Well, and, uh, <laughs> what I mean is that um, he was, of course, ahead of his time, but he brought us all up behind him. And he right. lived to see his shows become a regular part of, of the American revival repertory all over this country. You know what's well to me is that the last time I went to the to Broadway Con, uh, there, the, there was a panel... Uh, there was a panel about Sondheim. I mean, I can't remember what it was exactly. There was like a more specific topic. It was not generic Sondheim. It was something about Sondheim. And it was in one of the biggest ballrooms and it was packed and there was a line to get in. And it was all kids who were like a third of my age. And that's wild to me. That's just incredible. I mean, you know, like in, in that landscape, it's just, it's like Sondheim and Newsies and... Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, whatever else. It's, it's just incredible. That was wild. 
Well, you know, apropos of all this, what Sondheim's departure means to me is he's left he's left me for the remainder of my plate time on this planet with this aching desire to to have these exciting, exhilarating um, events happen to me in a darkened space. Yes, and. I'm left with that urge, that lifelong urge to have that happen again. And I think that you, that uh, Elizabeth and Terry, uh, I think you share with me that hunger, that insatiable appetite to have that happen again and again. So mm-hmm. his, his, leaving, his leaving just opens it up for us, more room for us to have that space with <laughs> other artists. Um, but I think we're, we've all got the bug in a completely um, terminal way ourselves. I don't right. think yeah. Ever, yeah, we'll ever be able to uh, flush that out of ourselves. Best job in the world. Oh, that's well, true. I hate to say it, but the time has come to bring the final episode of Three on the Isle to a close. We have had so much fun these past four years talking to you all, talking to our guests. Um, uh, as we say in the business, we've had an awfully good run. I think, I think I speak for all of us when I express profound gratitude to you, our listeners, and to American Theatre Magazine, our hosts, for making the past four years possible. And, of course, to Erica, as well as to Kirby Pate, her predecessor in the producer's chair. Uh, they are the ones who have allowed us uh, technical inept to uh, just sit and talk, making sure that what we said would finally make it out there into the great stream. So thank you, Erica. Uh, Elizabeth, Peter, thank you so much for these four years. I'm, I'll be Carol Burnett. I'm so glad we had this time together. And I'll tug my ear and say, and so for the last time, I'm Peter Marks. I'm Terry Teachout. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. As uh, as you all know, beware of revivals. <laughs> it's You've never. It's nothing is final in theater. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, you've, been, um, you've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Thanks for listening now, and for the past four years. Look for us on the aisle.